Okay, let's pray before we begin. Father, I just pray that you would uh, open up our hearts this evening. Father, we just come here just at the point of need, Lord, and, and Lord, we represent many different needs, Lord. Some of us need to be humbled, others exhorted, others rebuked, others encouraged. Father, we just ask that you would speak to each and every one of our hearts, Lord, just in, in a unique way and bless us with your word, Lord. I pray that we would be a blessing to you, Lord, as you open up our hearts and we receive with gladness. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so verse 1 of chapter 52 says, Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion, Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For the uncircumcised and the unclean shall no longer come to you. So if you go back in Isaiah 51, 9, it says, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. This is the people who were so down and low uh, in Israel because they uh, are under so much suffering because the enemy, the Babylonians, had come in and wiped out Jerusalem and left the city uh, really in smolders. Whenever I think of Jerusalem, uh, after the Babylonians came in, I just think of a city where you don't see anything except just smoke rising up amongst the rubble. <clears throat> That's really, in many respects, how it was. And the people were so discouraged, and uh, they were, they, this is with this was the cry of their heart, verse 9 of chapter 51. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Like, Lord, are you going to do something? You know, please do something. Now, it happened because of they, they were wiped out. The enemy came in and wiped out the city and, and took uh, really tens of thousands of Israelites 900 miles away to, to Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq. It happened because of God's judgment against them, generation after generation, rebelling against the word of the Lord, inviting um, other gods and practicing, uh, you know, bringing, st bringing foreign idols it, right into the temple, just twisting and perverting the worship of the Lord. And, and the Lord had literally waited generations uh, pleading with the people through prophets, turn back, turn away from that, turn back to the Lord. They refused. But then, you know, in the midst of the judgment and in the midst of the chastisement, they're crying out, wait a second, wake up, God. What are you doing? Would you help us? So often that is exactly what happens when we're being disciplined for whatever sin that we've uh, done in our life. And, and you know, we we come to this wrong conclusion that, oh, God's not there uh, because all these things, um, you know, all these things are, are happening. But uh, uh, God's awake. And, and in verse 50, chapter 52, verse 1, actually he says the same thing to them. So in, in, in chapter 51, verse 9, it's, it's the Israelites saying to uh, God, would you wake up? Awake, God. In chapter 52, he, he says to them, no, you wake. Wake up. Awake. Rise up. Put on your strength, O Zion, your beautiful garments. And this is a prophetic word that 
the Lord is going to redeem them, reestablish them. Uh, and and he's, he's telling them, you know, sometimes in, in, in our life, we get a wake-up call from the Lord, where he's saying the same thing to us, awake, awake. Verse 2, shake yourself from the dust, arise, sit down, O Jerusalem, loosen yourselves from the bonds of your neck. And that means the chains that were around their neck, that symbolizes their bondage to the enemy. Uh, verse 3, for, for thus says the Lord, you have sold yourselves for nothing, but you, will, you shall be redeemed for nothing or without money. And so what's going on there, it's just they sold themselves into sin for nothing. They sold their lives. What a tragedy when men and women, human beings, sell their lives away. God has a particular purpose for their lives and they sell it to sin. They sell it for nothing, for nothing. But interestingly, though, there's an irony here. God says, you sold yourselves for nothing, but you're going to be redeemed for nothing. In other words, without money, he says, with, with no uh, payment at all, through a sovereign act of grace, through doing nothing that you deserve and and." You don't deserve it at all. You've done nothing to earn it. I'm going to redeem you, and it's going to be for free. Verse 4, for thus says the Lord God, my people went down at first into Egypt to dwell there. Then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Now, therefore, what, ha what have I here, says the Lord, that my people are taken away for nothing? Those who rule over them make them wail, says the Lord, and my name is blasphemed continually every day. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, they shall know in that day that I am he who speaks. Behold, it is, it is I. So he, what he's saying in verse 4, he says they were oppressed in Egypt. They were oppressed in Syria. Now they're being oppressed in Babylon. But I am going to... Going to uh, bring them back. I'm going to redeem them. At the end of verse 5, he says, my name is blasphemed continually every day. And part of the reason the name of God was, it was the word blaspheme means to speak about the Lord or his name uh, in a despising, offensive way. And, and of course, what had happened when the when Israel was defeated, everyone was blasph the enemies of God were blaspheming the name of the Lord. And, and they just continued to do that. You see, this is no God. There's no power with this God. He's a weak God. Look at, he couldn't even save his own people. That's what it means to blaspheme the name of the Lord. And it says, but it says in verse 6, but my people shall know my name. And therefore, they shall know in that day that I am he who speaks. Behold, it is I. So um, no, even though the Lord's name is being blasphemed, it was interesting. They went to this place in Babylon 900 miles away, and there they got to know the Lord. They got to know him. Even though it was an enemy land, it was in that place, you know, it's in that place of sometimes severe punishment and chastisement. Some, many times it's in prison. 
I was uh, talking with a man this week. He never knew the Lord until he was in prison. He was a fan. What's that book now about being a fan of Jesus? Has anyone read it? Yeah, what, what's the name of the book? Fan. fan. So, it, it, <laughs> very good. I, I think we... It, this, this book is being recommended to me by multiple people, and the whole theme of the book is that there's lots of people who are a fan of Jesus, but they're not in Christ. There's no passion there for the Lord. They haven't died. And, and I was just talking with someone this week. He was a fan of Jesus. Man, he loved to watch, you know, uh, Jesus... Um, being taught about in church. He loved to listen to the radio, but it took until he was in prison to put aside just being a fan and really give his life to the Lord. And it's interesting. It took them going to Babylon for them to really to get to know him. It says, my name is blasphemed continually every day, but even in that environment, my people shall know my name Therefore, they shall know it in that day that I am he who speaks. Behold, it is I. I am he who speaks. Now, I know that the am is in the, the uh, italics there, which means it's not in the Hebrew. So it's that I, he who speaks. But I am he who speaks, you know, God is the great, or Jesus is the great I am. Actually, that's the name of God, I am. And then he fills in the blanks of who he is for the rest of the Bible. I am peace, Jehovah Shalom. I am the God who heals you, Jehovah uh, Rapha. I am the God who protects you or who provides for you, Jehovah Jireh. But here we learned he is the God who speaks. There, it says, therefore, they shall know in that day that I am him who speaks. We spoke about a month ago about John the Baptist who learned to hear the voice of the Lord when he grew up in the wilderness. It's so important that we learn to hear the still, small voice of the Lord. I have learned over the years the more years that, that, that uh, you know, I'm, I'm with the Lord, the more I learn to distinguish and to hear the still small voice of the Lord. It says in, 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 in verse 9 of chapter 51, they're like, awake God, would you say something? And, and right, what, what he's saying right here in verse 6 is, no, in this day, in that day, when you're in Babylon and, 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 and amongst the people who blasphemes my name all day long, you will... Get to know who I am, and, and you will realize I'm not asleep. <laughs> I am the God. I am the God who speaks. It says at the end of verse 6, Behold, it is I. Verse 7, very familiar verse. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring glad tidings of good things, who proclaim salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. You know, when, when someone's in a, 
a place of discouragement. There's no better word or stronger word of encouragement than to just go in and say, listen, your God reigns. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who proclaim that God reigns. You see, they had convinced themselves that God did not reign. How could he be reigning? Our city is in smolders. The temple has been burned down. It's been eliminated. But here it says that in verse 8, your watchmen shall lift up their voice and, and say this, that your God reigns. A watchman is a, a prophet. Now, I think, you know, this is such a, a, a this, this, Paul quotes this verse in Romans 10, so I would like to turn there. Turn with me to Romans chapter 10. Verse 13, Isaiah is quoted, I think Isaiah is quoted more than any other book in the Old Testament other than, I think, the Psalms. Uh, but um, it's quoted repeatedly throughout the New Testament. And if we look at verse 13 of Romans chapter 10, that's about the sixth book of the New Testament. Verse 13 of chapter 10 says, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But how then shall they be call upon him who they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how, th how shall they preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. That's our, our, our Isaiah 52 right there. And that says in verse 17, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And, and so just, it, it is true. You know, you may not be a big fan of of feet, or, or you may not think of feet as beautiful. You know, feet, you know, uh, I don't know, the guy in the Song of Solomon, he would come up with a way. But, um, <laughs> but uh, here, the feet, how beautiful are they who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring glad tidings of good things, who proclaim salvation who say to Zion, your God reigns. Your watchmen shall lift up their voices. With their voices they shall sing together, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord brings back Zion. So this, remember, throughout the time we're in the book of Isaiah, we have to remember that when we read it, there's also often a near-term fulfillment, which there will be here, when the people just declare glad tidings that they're going to return to uh, Israel, to the nation of Israel. But there's a, a later fulfillment of people declaring the good news, the gospel of peace, where man can be reconciled to, to God, whereby he, he, there's, there's peace between him or her and God. That's the gospel of peace, that man is born an enemy of God. You come out of your mother's womb, an enemy of God. 
and that's because you've inherited the sin of Adam. But the gospel of peace, and how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who proclaim the gospel of peace. Verse 9, break forth into joy. Sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has made bare his holy arm. And that's just a, a way of saying that, you know, it's just an expression. The Lord has made bare his holy arm. It's just he's, uh, you know, sort of get, ripping off the sleeve. And you see, wow, that's a big pair of biceps there sort of deal. He's, like, he's made bare his holy arms in the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of the Lord. And then here is, it's a prophetic it's a prophetic word to the people. And he says, depart. So they're in 900 miles away in modern-day Iraq and Babylon. And he's saying, depart. Depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Be clean, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. Now, the vessels were just the things that were used in the temple. So this is actually speaking to priests or the Levites there. It said, go out, leave, go back, go back to Jerusalem. Verse 12, for you shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. So now in verse 13, Isaiah breaks into the greatest messianic prophecy there is in the Bible, the prophecy of the Messiah, the prophecy that once they go back to Jerusalem and they are established there, there will be one who comes from their midst who will be the Savior, the Son of God, and it's not a coincidence, again, that at the beginning or of this chapter you, or, or in the middle, we read about how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news. Good news of who? Of the Messiah, of Jesus. Verse 13, behold, my servant shall deal prudently or wisely, and he shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage or his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of man. So verse 14 is referring to when Jesus was beaten and scourged prior to his crucifixion. It says that many were astonished, just as many were astonished at you, meaning Jerusalem and how far low they got, his, the Messiah's visage or his appearance was marred much worse, more than any man. And if you read through the gospel accounts, Jesus was beaten. He was arrested. He was, went to a a Jewish court where he was beaten. Then he went to Pilate where he was uh, 
beaten again. Then he went to Herod, then back to Pilate where he was whipped. After he was whipped, he went and to the Roman Praetorium where he was beaten again. By the time he got to the cross, verse 14, people were just astonished at what they saw. His appearance was marred. It was scarred. It was... Um, he, he was uh, virtually uh, unrecognizable um, at that point. Now, what's really interesting here, though, is in verse 13, it says this person who's going to be marred more than any other man, it says he shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. So there's this almost paradox as you read through Isaiah 52 and 53 of this terrible, terrible suffering this servant is going to go through, but at the same time we're told that he shall be exalted and he shall be extolled and be very high. Verse 15, so he shall sprinkle many nations. And what that means, in the Old Testament, the priests would go throughout the tabernacle and they would sprinkle with blood, all the vessels of the Lord, meaning all the instruments that were used for ministry, he would sprinkle them with blood. Everything would be sprinkled with the blood, the blood of the lamb, the blood of the the sacrifice. And what that did, that purified uh, everything for, or it made holy everything for ministry. The priests themselves were, had a sprinkling with the blood. And, and, and it says in verse 15 that he, Jesus, will sprinkle many nations. That's referred, just referring to the atoning blood of Jesus and how many peoples will be, uh, will be made clean. What? Because of his blood, the sprinkle and blood go hand in hand. Uh, And it says, and kings shall shut their mouths at him. In other words, just his his glory and his purity and his innocence will shut the mouths of people. For what they had been told them, they shall, rather, for what had not been told them, they shall see. The Gentile nations had not been told the gospel, but Jesus repeatedly said in his ministry that after the gospel was presented to the Jews and rejected, it would be sent to the nations. So verse 15 says, what they had not been told, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. Verse 1 of 53 really should not be, you know, these chapter breaks did not exist when this was originally written. This was all together. Uh, Some say it would have been better to start chapter 53 at verse 13 of chapter 52, but it doesn't really matter. But anyway, verse 1 of chapter 53 says, who has believed our report? In other words, this is strange. The Messiah, the one who is going to be marred more than any other man, and we'll see as we go through this chapter, he's going to be bruised, he's going to be whipped and scourged. Who has believed our report that that person could possibly be the Messiah? That's just a crazy report. Who has believed our report? And to whom 
has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And it says, and it's sort of the prophet saying, looking into the future, saying, wondering, who, who's going to get this wonderful news? How beautiful are the feet on the mountain uh, of those who bring good news? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. Meaning that he'll grow up in weakness. Who's going to believe that report? That the Messiah, who the Bible talks about, is going to wipe out all unrighteousness, which is going to establish a, a kingdom of righteousness. Who's going to believe this report? That he's going to grow up like a tender plant. A tender plant is what? It's fragile. It's easily, you know, it's easily sort of knocked over, that type of thing. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. You know, at the time that Israel, at the time of Israel, uh, when Jesus was raised up out of obscurity and, and, and he began his ministry, Israel was indeed a dry ground. It was just being oppressed by the Romans there was nothing about the nation of Israel itself that you could think of as powerful at all or as able to defeat a world empire. He, he, he grew up as a root out of dry ground. And there may also be an allusion there just to the fact that Jesus, I believe, is at chapter 42 of Isaiah where he's referred to coming up out of a stump. So the Israel was like chopped off like a tree, and out of the stump, uh, the, the, the branch came up. The Messiah uh, grew out of it. Verse 2, he had no form or comeliness. And, and you know, in, in a more modern translation, I guess this is a modern translation, but the NIV or, or some of the, the easier-to-understand translations will just say he, there, he wasn't handsome. There was nothing just going on there. When we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. And so, you know, some of these um, pictures that you see of Jesus, these paintings, I mean, you know, who's a handsome guy? Leonardo DiCaprio, is he he a good? I I never know. Any guy I ever say, Stephanie goes, no, he's, he's ugly. Um, but but uh, but I you know you see these you 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 see these um, these paintings and of Jesus and and it's like wow that he's like a handsome dude and uh, some of them some of them he looks like Hercules have you ever seen those uh, it, it, but but the, the thing is it says he has no form or comeliness that we should see him there is no beauty that we should desire him. So there, Jesus simply was not this guy who everyone was going to be attracted to his physical stature or his looks and, and um, follow him for that reason. Verse 3, he is despised and rejected by men. And remember on Sunday morning, we, just been, we were talking about from the cradle, he was despised. He was born, after he was born, he was put in a feeding trough for camels and donkeys and and in verse 3 it says that a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief we hid our faces from him you know that's the kind of scene a baby in a in a feeding trough you you uh, uh, that's not even something you want to even look at uh, but certainly 
the same thing after he was scourged and repeatedly beaten. It says they beat Jesus with their fists, it says, uh, I believe in the book of Mark. And it says that, that people looked at him and it's like they hid their faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. He was a man of, verse 3, of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Now there's, you know, uh, there's a lot of debate. You know, did Jesus ever laugh? And, and, and sometimes I think people without even sort of thinking the issue through, of course he, he laughed. And I believe he did laugh. But before we say that, let's just, you know, let's, let, let's come to that conclusion because of the, that's what the Bible teaches, not because it's like a good idea. Um, I believe that Jesus clearly was a person who he knew the joy of, of life and he laughed and, and, and the reason he was accused of being a friend of sinners and a glutton and a drunkard was because he was right alongside of them having a good time. But he was also a man of sorrows. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You know, this, this week I, I went up to a couple uh, of young ladies. I was on, I was uh, walking, and um, they, were, they were smoking weed. They were smoking weed, not reefer, weed. Uh, um, I, I'm told that reefer is something from the, the 70s. But, uh, um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I began talking to them and 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 I, I I told them I said you know you're getting satisfaction from that but I know a place where you can get such greater satisfaction because you know you'll take a couple hits of that and man it'll it'll you'll just want you'll wake up tomorrow and you'll need to take another hit again and and she says well does this does this offend you and you know do you feel bad about this and I said no not really um uh, not, but, but, but God loves you. God wants something so much better for you. And as I was walking away, you know, it's, I, if that was my own daughter, it would have broken my heart. My heart wasn't broken. It should be. I pray that it will more and more. Uh, but it wasn't. And, you know, praise the Lord, I was able to share with them anyway, but, 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 can you imagine being God? And although it's true what Robert Fountain said last Sunday morning, not everyone's a child of God. They're a creation of God. God did mold every single man and woman in his own image. And when he sees them trashing their life by smoking weed or getting wasted or working their life into the ground for a, 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 you know, a, a job or cheating on their spouse, whatever, it breaks his heart. And when he saw Lazarus die and all the mourning uh, uh, surrounding the death, he wept. He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. I just, none of us will ever know how difficult it must have been for Jesus to walk as a man and see the effect of sin with all these people he knew so well, many of them being lost, going to hell. Can you imagine the sorrow 
of knowing someone who is made in your own image, knowing that they're going to hell. He was a man of sorrow. So did he laugh or, and, 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 you know, did he have joy? Of, of course he did, the joy of the Lord. He can't help but have joy. That's part of who, that's a, one of the names of God. Um, it's part of his character. But he knew sorrow. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He has borne our griefs and he has carried our sorrows. In a, in a very real way, Jesus has taken on our grief in such a way that when we're in a season of deep discouragement or depression, we really can go to him believing that he's taken on that discouragement or, and, and our grief. And, and uh, this is also talking about all the guilt, the shame, and the sorrow over sin. He just took it all on himself on the cross and, and as people looked at him on the cross it says it was it, it, rather than thinking oh wow he's doing a good thing no he's he's been smitten by God he's been punished by God he's he's been afflicted verse 4 now we'll read that actually he was being punished by God it was only it wasn't for his own sin it was for ours verse 5 he was wounded for our transgression. A trespass or transgression in the Old Testament is a deliberate sin, a willful sin, a trespass. He was bruised for our iniquities. I believe that word bruise, a little, little translation, is pierced through for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace or the punishment for our peace peace was upon him. In the book of Ephesians, it says that God, a peacemaker, God makes peace between us and him through Christ. And it says, by his stripes we are healed. Now, a stripe is just the mark on a person's back after they have been whipped. So it's, it's basically the mark left from a lash. By his stripes, we are healed. <clears throat> now that particular verse has been quoted a lot by people who believe that part of the new covenant, and Jesus is our new covenant. We read about that, I think, in chapter 49, that there's physical healing always for everyone and immediate now. And the problem with that is that just doesn't reconcile with the whole Word of God. There is, it's just so clear that um, the Apostle Paul was ill uh, and, and uh, had a thorn, a physical thorn in his side. It's that there's illnesses you know, throughout the, the, the Bible, you know, these people like Elisha uh, who, 
had so many miracles, a double portion, then Elijah you know, died of, of some malady. And so you see men and women of God dying uh, from physical uh, illness throughout the Bible. It is certainly true that by the cross and by his stripes, everyone will be completely whole and healed when uh, we get to heaven. There is a mystery here. I do believe there's a provision for healing uh, because of Jesus' stripes. Uh, the, uh, it's, ju- it, it, it's just that that's a mystery. You know, when God decides to heal, I don't. We, we, it's like we were talking about this morning. We can't put a gun to God's head and hold him hostage and say, you have to heal. He's God. We're not. Many times a sickness is the best thing for us. There's testimony after testimony after testimony of people who will tell you it's the best thing that ever happened to them. I think of Johnny Erickson Tata, who was a quadriplegic. She has been for the last 40 years, and just the tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of people who have been ministered to and people coming to the Lord through her ministry, what would have happened if she got um, healed 40 years ago? No one would know about her. Uh, she would just been a, one of many, many glorious healing miracles. That's, that's a great thing, but she would not have been used. So the Lord chooses um, to heal and he chooses not to heal the important thing is that the chastisement for our peace, the punishment or the chastening that brought us peace, that brings us peace with God, not only peace but with God, but peace with each other. The body of place, rather the body of Christ is a place where you can actually find peace. Yes, it's true. There, there are churches that the bickering's worse than in the world, but there's nothing like a body, the body, a church body where the spirit of the Lord is in operation and just the peace that is there. And the people just laying down offenses against them, people being sinned against and and they go before the Lord and say, I'd rather be sinned than create disunity here and, or people talking out differences. It's all because of Jesus. The chastisement for our peace was put upon him, our sin, and that which creates rebellion. And it was all put upon him. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. This is a great verse to witness to someone with. There is no exception. Every person on the face of the earth, earth has gone astray. Everyone has turned to their own way, it continues, but the Lord has laid on Jesus, on him, the iniquity of us all. So there is iniquity in everyone. Iniquity is a, is a good word because it just, sometimes we hear the word sin. It's like, well, you know, yeah. You said a four-letter word when someone cut you off on the highway, you know, a sin. But iniquity, it really goes to a heart that is deeply depraved. That's our iniquity. The Bible says that in the seedbed of our heart, there is iniquity there. And it says that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And so when 
ever you saw Jesus falsely accused, you remember he never opened his mouth. So they were accusing him. They were building up a false, false accusations against him when he was before the chief priests, after he was arrested. He never opened his mouth. But he was before Pilate. They were giving him all kinds of false accusations. He never opened uh, his mouth. Some say he didn't open his mouth because, in a sense, he couldn't deny it because he had taken on our guilt. Um, and so he didn't want to d- defend himself. That was the reason. Now, he did open his mouth. Some people say, oh, this was a false prophecy because he did open his mouth. He opened his mouth when they asked him, are you the Christ? In other words, he couldn't deny who he was. So one time he did, o- the, the times that he did open his, uh, his mouth, Pilate said, are you a king? Yes, I am a king. But whenever he was falsely accused, he never opened his mouth. And you remember, Pilate, the governor, the Roman governor, was just amazed uh, that he refused to do it. He was led like as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So I understand an amazing thing about sheep as opposed to other animals who can sort of sense when their fellow animals are being slaughtered. A sheep has no idea, you know. They're saying nothing, and they go right into the slaughterhouse. And same thing, they really cooperate, or, or, or so I understand, when they are sheared, whenever they're, the, the wool is shaved off of them. They're, they're just, okay, yeah, give me a haircut. You know, unlike me when I was eight years old, I would scream when, you know, my mother insisted that everyone else had long hair, and sure, here she is right there. You see, all the damage that was done because my mother brought me to the shearer every month. But uh, anyway... Um, <laughs> it was good for me. It was good for me. But anyway, but here, here, he, he, as a sheep before his shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? He was cut off from the land of the living, meaning he died. That's an important theological point. He had to die. There's theology, by the way, just loaded. I may not like the word, but the study of God, theology, that's what it means. Jesus had to die. He came to die. He had to die for our sins. There are some cults, like the Moonies. I remember getting into a conversation with them. They're, they really felt like Jesus, his plan A was for him to come and establish his kingdom right then when he came 2,000 years ago. Not so. The Bible says there first had to be payment for sin. Someone had to pay for sin. And here you see a reference to the Messiah getting killed. It's like, what's up with this? He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked. That's a reference to the fact that he was uh, put to death in the middle of two thieves, but with the rich at his death. And that may mean the rich, some, at, r- the rich is synonymous with the wicked in ancient times, but it also may mean uh, the fact that he was put in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, who was a very wealthy man. And so was probably, I think most people favor that prophecy that he was put in the tomb of a rich man. 
though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Now, some people say that this whole chapter, you may say, you may read this and say, how could anyone read this? How could a Jew read this and not immediately accept the Messiah? I, I, I mean, that is crazy. In fact, I, I think I've told this story before, but I went out with one of my bosses who was Jewish, and I made copies of Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, and I read this with him, and he said, obviously, this was written after Jesus was crucified. I said, no, really. Go consult your own Jewish scholars. This was before. Uh, but But you may ask yourself, though, how could they not conclude that Jesus, this fits perfectly the definition of, of what happened, the historical events that happened in Jesus' life. Well, uh, one, you know, uh, uh, some of them, what they say is this servant being referred to here in verse 13 of chapter 52, the person being described here is not a person, it's Israel. This whole thing is talking about Israel. Verse 3, despised and rejected by men. Talking about Israel. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Talking about Israel. Surely has borne our griefs and cared our sorrows. Talking about Israel. Well, it it really falls apart, you know, throughout this chapter, but no more than this verse in verse 9 where it says, he had no violence on his mouth. He he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Now, Israel has been accused of many things, but it's never been accused of never having any deceit on their mouth or violence. The, The Bible says they were exiled because they had been so violent, so much blood had been in Jerusalem that it covered Jerusalem from one end to the other. So this clearly is talking about a single person. Not to mention the fact that throughout here it makes a distinction between Israel and this person. It says, we considered him despised. We, We hid our faces from him. Verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. And someone asked me about this recently. How is it that it pleased the Lord to bruise him? By the way, if we could just go back for one second where in verse, uh, verse end of verse 6, this is an important, also a theological point, and, and we do need to know our theology. It's just the study of God, of who God is, and how uh, doctrine and teaching all fits together and explains life and meaning and purpose. It says at the end of verse 6, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's an important principle that the Father and the Son, they work together to bring out the redemption of the world. The Father laid on the Son the iniquity of of us all. And then verse 10, it just continues, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. How could it please God to see this kind of violence against his own son? The thought there is that the Lord knows 
that this payment, this punishment is going to result in people being rescued from eternal torment and judgment. And in that sense, it pleased him to be able to rescue you and me from hell and you know in and bring us and bring us to heaven it says he it pleased the lord to bruise him he has put him to grief so he put this is a sad scene a tragic scene that speaks about the grief of jesus in the garden of gethsemane the grief he was uh sweating drops of blood he was just, he was in so much grief he has put him to grief when you made his soul an offering for sin. So um, one, of the, yeah, one of the questions that people ask about the Garden of Gethsemane is why was Jesus grieving so much? I mean, just going to the cross? I mean, any parent would do that for a child, willingly. They wouldn't even have to grieve. They're missing the greater suffering. The greater suffering was not the physical punishment on the cross. The greater suffering was this. He made his soul a, an offering for sin. Meaning somehow God was going to punish him for the sin. Somehow there would be a separation that God the Father was going to turn his face from him because of the sin. And that is what caused him grief. Isn't that cool? I think that's, this is wonderful. Right here in verse 10, we get the explanation of why in the Garden of Gethsemane he was weeping. He has put him to grief when you made his soul an offering for sin. A reference to the Garden of Gethsemane. But then there's a shift here. It says, but he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. I um, like the NIV translation there. Eek, where did I do with it? I thought I wrote it down. 10 and 11. So the NIV says that after he su suffered, anyone have an NIV? After he suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. A reference to the resurrection. Verse 10, it says, he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. But in verse 10, also referring to the resurrection, right here it says, in the middle of it, it says, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days. In other words, there's going to be a resurrection here. He's going to be brought back to life. And it says, the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. Meaning God will see the travail, the pain, what Jesus went to, and he will say, um, I'm satisfied. I'm satisfied. Oh, here it is. How about that? Well, I'll read it. I'll read it from here. Isaiah 53, 11 says, he will see the light of life and be satisfied, and by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. Thank you, Don. And so uh, then it says, it just keeps on repeating and repeating and repeating and repeating the same point. End of verse 11, he shall bear their 
iniquities. And therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Now what does that mean? What does that mean? He will divide the portion with the strong. He will divide rather the spoil with the strong. I believe it's a reference to something that's also described in Ephesians chapter 4, which says when Jesus resurrected, was ascended into heaven, he led captivity captive and he gave gifts to men. So Jesus purchased, what was purchased was verse 12, it, it's what is described here in verse 12 as the portion. It says the portion he says, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil. There's so much, so many rewards. There's, there's so much blessing that came with just being obedient to the cross and the resurrection. But Jesus won't even keep it to himself. He'll, he'll, he'll share it. He'll divide it with you, you in this room. He will divide the spoil with a strong. Why? Because he poured out his soul into death. There's a blessing that comes along with pouring out your soul to death. There's, but ultimately, when Jesus poured out his soul to death, there was a tremendous spoil or blessing that result. And says he was numbered with the transgressors, meaning when they saw him on the cross, people were like, oh, he's a criminal and he's a sinner. He bore the sin of many, and he made intercession for the transgression, trans, transgressor. So by dying on the cross for our sin, when we call upon the name of the Lord, he becomes our high priest. That means he represents us before God. And he's able to intercede for us and say before the Lord, I am guilty. Jesus says, I am guilty before the throne. He makes intercession for us that we can live, and he gives us his righteousness. What a chapter. Isaiah 52 and 53. It's a wonderful chapter to just witness, uh, use in your witnessing with people, and just a wonderful chapter just to read and worship for sure.